2: It is too easy to make fun of former President Donald Trump and the new NFT collection he launched today. So we are not going to do it. We could do a whole big thing on how these quote unquote trading cards are just Trump photoshopped into the fantasy scenarios of a 10 year old boy like this one where he's a cowboy or this one where he's an astronaut or this one where he's a race car driver or this one where he's Superman. Or this one, where he is so cool that Hollywood has changed its name to Trump world. Or this one, where he is some sort of big, important stock guy. But we aren't going to. The comedy is just too obvious. It's low-hanging fruit. We could talk about the bizarre video he put out to promote this thing today. We could talk about how it seems like the kind of infomercial you might see at 2 a.m. when you wake up and the TV is still on. But we will not. We could talk about how we didn't need to pay the $99 sticker price for these digital images because we just did the perfectly legal action of right-clicking on them and using copy-paste. Even the mere fact that yesterday Trump hyped the launch of these really low-quality Photoshop jobs as a quote-unquote major announcement just feels so easy. It would be like stealing candy from a baby to make fun of that. So we are not going to do it. We will not stoop that low. But I do think Trump's NFT announcement is worth paying attention to for one reason. I don't think it's really news that Trump is yet again doing another big, blatant grift. Trump doing something like that is about as revelatory as the fact that water is wet. But what was amazing about Trump's announcement today was that the conservative ecosystem that has propped him up for years now seems to be embarrassed by him.
0: Trump announced that he had a major announcement today. And in the major announcement, it is the sale of a um, what do you call the, the uh, digital
3: playing cards? A yeah. digital,
0: and he's a Trump thing. And so there is, uh, you know, the assumption that I def- would, whoever advised him on whoever advised him on that, I'd fire him immediately.
1: They're called Trump digital trading cards. These cards feature some of the really see. incredible. OK,
3: I got it. I got it. I can't watch it again. Make it
4: stop.
2: That was the first one was Trump National Security Advisor slash wild conspiracy theorist Mike Flynn and the former chief strategist slash current far right TV host Steve Bannon. Those two guys, even they can't get on board with this thing. And that's not cherry picking reactions. Major conservative media outlets had a field day today roasting the former president, the guy they used to write fluff pieces about. The New York Post called Trump's NFTs, quote, cringy." The Washington Examiner did a roundup of Trump being, quote, mercilessly mocked for the whole thing. And a writer at the conservative blog Red State said, I voted for Trump twice, so I have zero animosity toward anyone who remains a fan. But man, this kind of stuff is making it really difficult to not just throw my hands up. Of course, it's not just these NFTs that have conservatives hiding their MAGA hats on a high shelf in the closet. As the editor-in-chief of the conservative magazine The National Review, Rich Lowry, wrote yesterday, it's hard to imagine how Trump could have had a worse month-long run. Ordinarily, one might say, as a way of exaggerating to emphasize the point that it could only have been worse if he had had dinner with a Nazi. But, of course, he did that, too. Oof. And it's not just conservative media that seems to be abandoning Trump. It looks like his donors are, too. In a key fundraising window right after Trump announced his new bid for the presidency, Trump raised a grand total of $4.2 million. $4 million over two weeks. Now, $4 million is a lot for an individual. But for a presidential campaign these days, it is nothing. Compare it to the $130 million Trump raised in the two weeks following the 2020 election. If that, all of that was not enough cold water, the latest polling should be. In July, 60% of Republicans wanted Trump to run again. Now, only 47% do. And 45% do not want him to. And that's just polling Republicans. Yesterday, The Wall Street Journal released the results of a hypothetical matchup between Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for the Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis beat Trump 52 to 38%, a 14-point margin. Now, historically, Republican primary polling has not mattered this far out. At this point in the 2000 election cycle, Elizabeth Dole and Dan Quayle were seen as the frontrunners for the Republican ticket. In 2008, Rudy Giuliani seemed like a shoe-in. And at this point in 2016, Trump wasn't even seen as a contender. But this time really does feel different. Trump is an incredibly known entity, and it doesn't seem like Republicans like what they know about him. Joining us now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, there's almost no one in the world that I would rather... Talk about all of this. And I'm going to try and refrain from glee.
3: Very high minded show. We do it, not do We glee don't here. do it. Nope, it's too low hanging fruit. Nope.
2: Having said that, let's go back to the <clears throat> NFTs. Let's do it. And let's <laughs> talk about the disparity between this major announcement that Trump was promising yeah. and the reality of basically photoshopped images of Trump as a 10 year old fantasy.
3: Stunning. I mean, stunning. OK. Stunning in the caveat that we have said stunning words like that before. I couldn't believe it. And I, and the fact that Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, I mean, I'm just, I'm now just sort of trying to catch up on the, I assumed that people would go into their corners and say, oh, it's just Trump being Trump. There was real contempt there. I mean, real contempt for people who are absolutely fundamentally like so loyal to him. That might be an indicator. The polls might be an indicator. And look, this on its face is kind of a joke. I think Mm -hmm. that's how people are reacting to it. But, I I am beginning to think that maybe this actually might be different. I mean, the, the, Teflon guy might actually finally be turning a corner, and, and the party might seem to be ready to move on from him.
2: It also speaks to um, the character of a man who no—I mean, p- part of Trump's appeal and part of the thing that he was, you know, granted, I think, reluctantly in some corners, was that he understood the sort of pulse of the American electorate. And he yeah. had a way of communicating, and they didn't see him as the grifter that some other people, especially in the media, understood him to be. Right. But this is the first time where you really feel like he's, he's lost his sales pitch. He doesn't, ha- he doesn't understand. He's not, they're not picking up what he's putting down. They're not buying what he's selling.
3: Well, my sense is that's true. I mean, the, the, there is a greater eye roll. The, the fact of the matter is, though, he could go out to somewhere in Iowa, Michigan, Ohio tomorrow, and I'm almost certain could get 20,000 people somewhere. Ron DeSantis, you know, maybe a higher curiosity rate. But look, I mean, right now you have this one-to-one race, right? I mean, Mike Pence... Ted Cruz, any other other Republicans, Liz Cheney, aren't the kind of people who are going to defer to Ron DeSantis and decide to sort of step down. So I still think, despite all of this, mm-hmm. he is the overwhelming frontrunner and has to be taken very seriously because of that.
2: And I want to talk about Ron DeSantis, someone you've been writing about at The Atlantic. Um, I, I laughed when I read the latest piece we're going to get to it in a second. But, but I do think, I mean... Setting aside the presidential mm-hmm. race, which is, let's just remind everybody, years away.
1: Right.
2: Beyond just the acolytes saying, you know, cringing at what Trump's doing, the right wing media is, is, you know, the, the fact that he seems to have lost Rupert Murdoch, who's running New yeah. York Post headlines that say Trump de Dumpty, you know, like is Fox News next? And, and the question, it begs the question, who is going to be there to rush to his side? Is there anything the man can do? To to sort of turn the wheel back to a time when he was more um, uh, championed, if you will, by the right wing
3: world. My sense is, and you know, this is this is kind of a personal pet issue with me, but there has been such a high level cowardice up and down the the conservative media system, the ecosystem, the Republican Party that as soon as if he does turn a corner, if he just sort of gains some momentum and normalcy back. I am of the belief that most people will fall into line again. I think.
2: Okay, but you say gain some normalcy back, and that makes me like it's PTSD from everybody who watched the presidency. And there would be these moments where Trump would do something outlandish, and then his advisors would get him out in the Rose Garden or elsewhere, reading script from a teleprompter, and would say, "Oh, he's become presidential again. It's okay. He's done it. He's he understands that he can't act like that." And then again, the, the joke was on us every single time because he would continue to do something outlandish. And Rich Lowry makes this point. Trump does not have easy levers to use to change the narrative. It is not as though he can have a good legislative session next year, like the governors who are thinking of running, Mm -hmm. or use his executive powers to pick useful fights. I mean, all he's got is himself— and maybe a couple boxes of classified documents down at Mar a Lago and a bunch of NFTs. Really? And Boris Epstein. That's yes. what he's got. Those are the tools in his arsenal. Well, I mean,
3: you would think so. I mean, look, if he weren't so lazy, if he weren't so uncreative, I mean, he actually could do DeSantis like things, whereas he could go to the border. He could do some kind of event in an inner city somewhere to highlight crime. He could do something. Um, I don't know, in the Middle East, like, you know, visit a friendly capital somewhere where people still love Trump. I mean, there are things people that he can do mm. to accentuate. I mean, if you're a serious politician, yeah. if you're willing to actually do the work here, that, that could accentuate the good that he perceives and that many in the conservative world perceive as him having. But ultimately now, I mean, this is, I think, emblematic of one, the, as, as you said, the lack of levers he has to play, but also his just laziness. and And frankly, I, he almost feels bored. He almost feels mm. like this thing is sort of played out. And in some ways, maybe he is projecting or the conservative base or the MAGA base is responding to what they see in him. Maybe I'm projecting my own wish casting onto him, but I do think there's a lot of that.
2: Well, boring is something he's never wanted to be. He's pretty boring. In some well, ways this, sense. yes. I mean, me, the yeah. NFTs do sort of have a twiddling my thumbs with nothing better to yeah. do quality to them. Do you think the investigations help him if he's indicted by the special counsel if the DOJ goes after him formally. Does that help him in the way that the Mueller investigation helped him gin up enthusiasm among his base?
3: It, it could, because I think that most Republicans are so you know, powerful, putative leaders of the Republican Party. DeSantis, even his putative rivals, are such cowards, they they would actually sort of run to his defense in some way and make him a cause celeb, make him a bit of a martyr. That, him, that would probably elevate him in a perverse way. Um, You know, within the Republican Party. Having said that, people just sort of say, "Okay, well, there are six active investigations, whatever it is." I mean, these are all big deals on their own. And look, I don't care if you're a sociopath or what. I mean, if this is hanging over you, I mean, it is going to take a great deal of sort of psychic resource, you know, financial resource, legal stuff. I mean, it's just a lot of time. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't envy that. How
2: much legal uh, representation do the NFTs pay for? No one can know that answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about Rhonda. DeSantis, because you have yeah. some choice analysis in The Atlantic. Um, Nobody has really talked about who Ron DeSantis is as a politician. We've talked about the legislation, the, the stuff he's overseen in Florida as a governor. We've talked a lot about it on this show. But as a person who would have to theoretically contend with Trump in the arena in which yeah. he is most comfortable, the ba- the blood sport of debate and campaigning, Ron DeSantis is as a curious bird. Here's an excerpt from your piece. <laughs> I'd rather have teeth pulled without anesthetic than be on on a boat with Ron DeSantis, says Max Dippinovich, a Tallahassee Tallahassee lobbyist. To sum up, DeSantis is not a fun and convivial dude. He prefers to keep his earbuds in. His step away from the vehicle vibes are strong. And then this—and then this. On a debate stage, all of Trump's strengths go to straight to DeSantis's weaknesses, Stepanovich told me. Trump has energy and presence. DeSantis is dour and doesn't improvise particularly well. People who are appropriately sycophantic to Trump swear he possesses a certain charm and charisma. Even those who are eager to vouch for DeSantis don't say this about him. He would launch any charm offensive unarmed. Uh, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of what may come in 2024.
3: Hmm. And he might have a complete personality overhaul. I mean, I guess the point. How can you, know,
2: you do that, though? How can anyone really, truly have
3: Florida a. Florida is a magical place. <laughs> you can do anything. You can Florida. do anything. No, I mean, look, it, it's um, there is a long tradition of sort of next big things who are just built up. Donors love them. Um, They win elections like DeSantis did last month in in pretty impressive fashion. Then they come out to play and it's like, oh, you know, where's President Beto O'Rourke or Rick Perry or Scott Walker? I mean, go down the list. Or Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush. DeSantis right now seems to have the theoretical field to himself. I think, though, that his personality type, people who know him in Florida, people who served with him in Congress, other Republican governors in in other states who were serving when he was there, all say that that Trump is the kind of person who can run circles around someone who is just fundamentally not comfortable in their political skin, doesn't have the greatest stage presence. And look, maybe I'm being shallow here, but I don't think that's a good matchup for DeSantis. And I'm not sure he's going to wear it particularly well.
2: (laughs) Boris, one of your sources said, my sense is that Trump would gut DeSantis with a dull deer antler.
3: Yeah, or club him like a baby seal. This is Mac. He um, he loves those violent animal, animal metaphors. metaphors. Well, yeah, they, they,
2: they speak volumes.
3: They, they do. Mark <laughs>
2: Leibovich, a thrill and an honor to have you Always. on set with me. Writer for The Atlantic, staff writer for The Atlantic. Great reporting on Ron DeSantis and every other aspect of American politics. Thanks for the time tonight, my friend. Thank you, Alex. We have lots more coming up this hour. Remember this scene inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, Republican lawmakers gleefully applauding as members of their own party objected to the Electoral College count? Senator Amy Klobuchar joins us later in the show, and I will ask her what Congress has in the works to prevent future elections from being stolen in the same way. But first, the day is almost here. The January 6th committee is set to release its final and exhaustive report next week. We're going to break down what to expect. Stay with us.
1: for the love
0: of home Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: On January 6th, while a pro-Trump mob attacked the U.S. Capitol, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, was getting these text messages back at the White House.
5: Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark He needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this down. It
2: was over a year ago that Liz Cheney first revealed the text messages sent from Republican members of Congress and conservative media hosts to Mark Meadows during the January 6th attack. They all requested the same thing, for Trump to do something anything to stop the attack. These messages were revealing in that they pointed towards Trump and his inaction. But equally revealing was what Liz Cheney said next.
5: These non-privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty during those 187 minutes. And Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes? Cheney was suggesting
2: deliberately for the first time that Trump might have committed a felony. And the language she carefully used and later repeated pointed to a specific section of the criminal code under Section 1512 of Title 18. That says that whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. A year later, the January 6th committee is finally ready to present its conclusions. That will happen next week. On Monday, the panel is expected to meet and consider issuing civil, and criminal referrals against the former president and his key allies. It's expected to release the full version of its final report on Wednesday. Now, a House committee issuing referrals is, of course, just that, referrals. The power of prosecution rests with the Justice Department. But it is worth noting that the four members of the special subcommittee analyzing whether to make these criminal referrals in the first place, those people are all lawyers, all with prosecutorial and trial experience so they know what they're doing. Furthermore, Representative Jamie Raskin, who's leading that subcommittee, has said that while they're largely relying on publicly known evidence, in some cases, there may be evidence that has not yet come to light. He also said, we are going through the painstaking work of analyzing how much evidence we have and which things we think rise to the level of referral to the full committee. Joining us now is Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. Luke, thank you for being here. It's great to see you. Uh, We... What's we wanted to play that old sound of Liz Cheney because what's so abundantly clear is from the inception of this committee, from its first televised hearing, the Congress people on the committee were referring to criminal statutes. They were building a legal case against those involved in the January 6th plot, and I just wonder. How much do you expect their referrals to not be vague, but to be highly specific and cite criminal code and in so doing make it very difficult for the DOJ to ignore these referrals or otherwise push them aside?
4: Right. Well, I do expect them to be quite specific. You know that that team of four lawyers that you uh, pointed to are some very accomplished attorneys who have been going through this, and they, and they've spent weeks and weeks working on these referrals. And not all of them started off in favor of referrals. Uh, Zo Lofgren. At the beginning of, of this process was deeply skeptical of, of Congress, uh, issuing criminal referrals. She thought it wasn't really their purview. It, it was maybe outside of their jurisdiction, not really the, the right exercise for Congress to be doing. But over time, they, they gained a, a level of confidence in the investigation that they were doing. They realized that they were ahead of the Justice Department in many aspects. And they also realized that they had this role to play in educating the public on how certain actions violated certain criminal codes. And they felt that they could even uh, present evidence and influence uh, even the Justice Department on how to interpret some of these statutes uh, to apply to some of the what they believe were crimes that happened on January 6th and the buildup to it. So I do expect that we will see uh, multiple criminal referrals on Monday. And but what's yet to be determined is exactly what charges and uh, what they will recommend against which individuals.
2: One way thing that that's going to well, there are two ways of looking at this. This is either going to put a lot of pressure on the DOJ and the special counsel and in turn Merrick Garland, the AG, or it could help buttress the case that they're already developing. I mean, do you have a sense of whether there's trepidation at the DOJ about what's coming next week or whether there's enthusiasm and anticipation?
4: Well, from my understanding, Merrick Garland and the top lawyers at the DOJ will say that this has no influence on them one way or the other, that, you know, they're running an independent investigation. Yes, it's thank you, Congress, for sending us this letter uh, with your thoughts, but, you know, you're a different branch of government and we're doing our own investigation. Uh, you know, that said, I do think what's, what's quite important for the committee is to lay things out for the public at large, and and when you do that, you can create a pressure on the Justice Department. Now, the concern from the committee was that this could actually backfire in a way, that it would look untoward that if, if the political branch is trying to influence the judicial branch, um, but ultimately, they came they came around to the view that if you have evidence, if you've accumulated all this testimony from all these interviews, you've gotten all these documents that you sort of need to give it to the Justice Department. It's almost your duty to do it. So that's that's where they've landed in the end. And, and I expect that we'll see some very specific language about which uh, civil or criminal um, statutes were violated.
2: Yeah, well, just from what we saw earlier this year, I would expect that as well. I I do wonder, um, we've gotten a sort of suggestion that there's going to be new evidence in the report that's issued next week. We know that since the last public hearing, um, the, the committee has spoken with Tony Ornato, that was on December 6th, and Bobby Engel, that was on November 17th. Both of those Secret Service agents were key players in Cassidy Hutchinson's bombshell testimony about what happened with the president on January 6th. Do you think that testimony, the information gleaned from those interviews, or those testimonies will be in the report that we see next week?
4: Yeah, well, so the uh, the matter with the Secret Service was, I think, the last big final leg of this investigation. You know, all of that sort of blew up after the final—or uh, the last public hearing— Um, That the committee had. And the members were essentially enraged upon learning that text messages had been deleted, that they hadn't gotten full cooperation from the Secret Service, that they believe that some of the uh, agents may have misled the committee. And so they hauled in these uh, these agents again. To re-interview them, and what they, what my understanding of what they've they've learned is a bunch of conflicting stories, and they do they still do not believe some people were being fully honest with the committee that some people's testimony actually contradicts certain documents and evidence they have, and so I know one thing that the committee is looking at is uh, obstruction or interference type of referrals, so that potentially could apply here. We might see that on Monday, and I'm almost positive that we will see a breakdown of the Secret Service. Um, with sort of a, a, a side-by-side comparison of, of what different testimony was. And, and remember, they are planning to release all the transcripts in the end. So even if things don't make a chapter in the report, we will get to read through them all and see exactly what people said to this committee.
2: There are going to be a lot of people that are interested in, in the full transcripts. Congressional reporter for The New York Times, Luke Broadwater, I know you're going to be reporting a lot next week. Thanks for making yeah. time, yeah. Luke. Thank you. Coming up, anti-abortion activists are already gearing up for the next big fight over reproductive rights by adopting tactics first pioneered by the environmental movement. What they are doing and what pro-choice advocates are doing to try and stop them. That's coming up next. A group of women in Mexico has been busier than ever since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. They call themselves Las Libres, the free ones, and there is a big reason why they're now inundated with calls from nearly every corner of the U.S. More than a dozen states have instituted abortion bans or effective bans since that ruling, laws that in some cases include prison time for people who perform or aid the procedure. Many of those states also ban the use of the FDA-approved abortion pills, mifepristone and misoprostol. People seeking abortions can order these pills from telemedicine providers who then mail them. In fact, exactly one year ago, the FDA decided to permanently allow abortion pills to be mailed. And that is where Las Libres comes in. The group has been providing abortion pills to women in Mexico for decades when abortion was first banned there. And now that millions of Americans have lost access to abortion, calls to providers like Las Libres for covert access to medication abortions, those calls have increased dramatically. This week, The Washington Post's Caroline Kitchener reports that the rise in medication abortions has rankled conservatives who thought that Dobbs was a big win, and they are now trying to do something about this. Now, many conservatives are complaining that the abortion bans are not being sufficiently enforced, even though much of the illegal activity is happening in plain sight. Everyone who is trafficking these pills should be in jail for trafficking, said the president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, who has started to speak with Republican governors about the prevalence of illegal abortion pill networks. One student group has even co-opted the environmental movement, repurposing its strategies to limit access to health care. Students for Life of America is focused on the environmental harm it says is caused by medication abortions, specifically from fetal remains flushed down the toilet, as often happens when women take abortion pills at home. The group is making plans to systematically test the water, Aaron Brockovich style, in several large U.S. cities, searching for contaminants that they say result from medication abortion. The Students for Life of America president said she will be meeting with Republican attorneys general in the new year to discuss issuing statewide injunctions against abortion pills based on the group's claims about toxic wastewater. As the fight over access to these pills ramps up, it is quickly becoming the next frontier of the fight for anti-abortion conservatives joining us now is caroline kitchener the washington post reporter who's been covering the politics of abortion caroline thanks for being here tonight let me just first start with this new strategy and how feasible it actually is to try and trace women who have had medication abortions through sewage water is that even possible can you do such a thing with that kind of accuracy
6: well, it, it wouldn't so much be to trace the women as to their claim is that these medications are creating toxic water and they are hoping to create some kind of injunction against these pills broadly. So the idea is to make abortion pills illegal you know, not just in Texas and Oklahoma, states that already have bans, but also in California and New York. That's the end goal for some of these groups that I think are growing increasingly desperate about, you know, what they see as this catastrophic problem.
2: So they're effectively using an environmental argument to outlaw abortion pills. Is that what we're to glean from all of this? And do we think that that is something that's going to find favor with the court?
6: Exactly. I mean, I have learned covering this abortion beat that nothing the things that sound wild, you should not dismiss. Um, we've seen time and time again that the anti-abortion movement has come up with new and creative ways to crack down on this procedure. And oftentimes, especially in the past few years, they have been successful. So I think we have to wait and see um, how this plays out.
2: There, we also have reporting that Republicans in Texas are trying to speak, um, or they're trying to work on a bill that would block websites that lead women to go and get or access these abortion pills. Um, it, it reminds me of other uh, part countries in the world where websites are blocked to um, cut back on people's personal freedoms. I will, I will, not, we'll, I won't go down that rabbit hole. But in terms of the, those efforts, where is that effort in the court system right now, and how favorable is the landscape in Texas, which of course has been leading the way in anti-choice uh, legislation?
6: Well, Alex, Texas is very much a testing ground. They convene for their state legislative sessions once every two years, and it is the place to look if you're interested in what the rest of the country could be doing a few years from now or next year on the issue of abortion. So I've been watching them very closely, and one of the bills that they're drafting right now is you know, basically, you know, censoring the internet, saying that, you know, people in the state of Texas will not be able to go on these websites. And, you know, even anti-abortion lawyers have told me that raises, you know, really severe free speech concerns. So I think we'll have to see how it plays out. It, It really remains to be seen whether there's the political will for these kinds of extreme measures, especially what we saw in the midterms with abortion being so widely popular. I think it's, it's, It's a really big question how much support these Republicans are going to have when they push for these kinds of measures.
2: Yes, you would think the writing would be on the wall, and yet some people choose to look away. Um, Caroline, you've been doing such great and important reporting on what's happening at the forefront of this really key issue. Thank you for your time and all the work that you're doing over there at The Post. Really appreciate it.
6: Thank you so much.
2: Coming up next, a stunning 147 Republicans, including eight senators, objected to the results of the 2020 election certifying Joe Biden's win, even after a violent Trump-supporting mob ransacked their place of work. And now Congress finally looks likely to take action on a bipartisan basis to try and prevent a similar coup from happening in the future. One of the key senators behind that effort, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, joins us to discuss. That's next. When we think and talk about what happened on January 6, we often focus on what happened outside the Capitol that day, but what happened inside the building was just as
5: important.
7: Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic?
4: Then I, Paul Gosar from Arizona. For what sport?
7: purpose does the gentleman from Arizona rise?
4: I rise up for myself and sixty of my colleagues to object to the counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona.
7: Uh, Is the objection in writing and signed by a senator?
5: Yes, it is. It is.
2: a standing ovation from Republican lawmakers during a joint session of Congress on January 6 for Congressman Paul Gosar and Senator Ted Cruz, who were the first to issue formal challenges to the certification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. This was an integral part of the coup that was attempted on January 6. In the months since then, Republicans have shown almost no appetite to hold the perpetrators of that plot accountable, except for one thing. Right now, at this very moment, Congress is likely to pass a law that would make it much harder for a handful of lawmakers to try and subvert a free and fair election. It is called the Electoral Count Reform Act, and it would modernize the Electoral Count Act of 1887, an antiquated law that Trump and his allies exploited in their attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The new law would clear up any doubts about whether the vice president can change the electoral vote count. He or she cannot. It would also change the threshold for objections to a slate of electors by requiring one fifth of the House and Senate to sign on to any objection, not a single congressman like Paul Gosar or a single senator like Ted Cruz. But there is a very short timeline to get this done, and the clock is ticking. Joining us now is Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, she chairs the Senate Rules Committee and has been leading the effort to get that Electoral Count Act passed. Senator Klobuchar, it's always great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. Is this bill going to pass?
7: Thanks, Alex. Yes, it is going to pass, and uh, Senator Schumer... Um, assured me, and he has been working to get it on the bill, as has Mitch McConnell, Speaker Pelosi, many others. Um, this is very important for our country. I was the one that read the votes uh, that night for Arizona. I will never forget in the morning what happened, but mostly I'll never forget what happened uh, later in the night when at 3.30 in the morning, Roy Blunt And Vice President Pence and myself were the last three there walking with the three pairs of young pages with the mahogany boxes filled with the electoral ballots up to Wyoming. And that was after the insurrection. We said democracy will prevail. And it did. And two weeks later, there we were under that beautiful blue sky with the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I was naive. I thought, well, that's it. The torch has been passed. But what we have since learned is that voter suppression efforts were again made all over the country uh, on election day, just in the last midterms in Arizona, people in camo showing up at election spots. This continues. And that is why it is so important that this Electoral Count Act, uh, which was worked on by Senator Manchin and Senator Collins, and so many others, and uh, Zoe Lofgren and Liz Cheney over in the House of Representatives, representatives that we pass this. It basically says, no, you cannot use this archaic law from the 1800s, Rutherford B. Hayes days to stop the will of the people.
2: You know, what's surprising about the law, first of all, that's an incredible memory. Um, And I am eager to hear more in more detail about the walking of that mahogany box. But what's interesting about the bill is it has 15 Republicans who've signed on or co-sponsored the bill. And there are some names on there that will be familiar because they're the names of retiring senators who have less skin in the game, if you will. But also signing on, Lindsey Graham. Chuck Grassley, Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, John Thune. You know, Republicans in leadership have been so loath to say anything you know, contrary to the conservative line about January 6th, they've been loath to hold accountable any of the insurrectionists or any of the plotters of this coup. Do you see this as an indication that Republicans like those might have more of an appetite to act as a check on people like Donald Trump in the coming years? Is this any should we read anything into their support for this bill?
7: Um. Well, uh, first of all, there was a bit of a check with those midterm elections in the U.S. Senate races, could I say?
2: Yes. yes. Um, and
7: that was because of the voters. I think they're well aware of that. But the second reason is that this bill needed to be reformed. It, I said it's archaic. What we do here, and they agree to this because they understand this could happen at any time again, and no one wants another insurrection except maybe one guy who's sitting out there. Uh, number one. Uh, it says the vice president's role is ceremonial. Um, you are not going to have this hang Mike Pence happen again because it's clarifying it's ceremonial. Secondly, it makes clear that you have to have 20% of the, of the senators or representatives in each body, 20% have to object in order to get to a vote and a debate. It could take days and days if someone really wanted to gum up the process, because as it is right now, only one senator, one House member could object from any party, even including uh, if their own person won. And so that is a crazy law, and that's why it needs to be changed. And finally, no more of these fake electors after the fact. Uh, they have to be set ahead of time, and there has to be an appeals process put in place. So we've made it very clear, and we welcome the Republican support. Uh, senator Blunt and I made some some changes, improve the bill, we believe, and we got a 14-to-1 vote out of the Senate Rules Committee. And that's part of the reason we've had this momentum uh, to get it on the end-of-the-year package. How
2: are you feeling about the, the coming Senate? I mean, we know that some of the Republicans on this, as I mentioned before, are the guys that are leaving—Toomey, Blunt, Burr, Portman, Sasse—you know, they are not going to be there. You're going to have J.D. Vance in the upper chamber. Um, you, the Democrats have a larger majority than they did before, kind of, depending on how you look at Kristen Cinema and her role in the upper chamber. Uh, are you feeling optimistic? Also, are you having lunch with Kristen Cinema anytime soon?
7: So, uh, first of all, she's always had an independent streak, and I think she's made it very clear she's going to continue to work with us on what is often the routine votes every single day that we have on judges and the like. But I look at it this way. We had a 50 to 50 crushing majority there, Alex. And now we're up to 51. It does help us to get nominees out of committees, all kinds of things. And we were able, uh, with the president's leadership, we were able to get all kinds of bills done on a bipartisan basis, starting with the Senate, I should add, infrastructure bills, uh, the, Initial gun safety bill. We know we have so much more to do. The work on semiconductors, making them in America. Those were all bipartisan efforts, so I don't rule that out. Am I concerned about what's going to go on in the House of Representatives uh, with some of the people in that caucus? Yes. Um, and it's a very, very tight situation over there, but it does give some Democrats some power uh, to try to work with us to push things through. And we always welcome some Republican support as well. Uh, But you saw miracles happen this last year, where with all odds against us with that 50-50 vote, we were able to pass bill after bill after bill.
2: It's amazing what you guys got done, and uh, in, in with, with that crushing majority.
7: And by the way, including just the last week, uh, with uh, the um, respect the Respect for Marriage Act, the fact that we finally were able uh, to pass the bill on a federal level with Tammy Baldwin's leadership and so many others and watching um, Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi and President Biden, Vice President Harris up there. I mean, it was an amazing moment and all the couples who had fought so hard um, to get this bill passed. Uh, It was it was something.
2: It was a good moment for the country, uh, and it was a bipartisan moment, which is important. The Democrat, Democrat from Minnesota, Senator Amy Klobuchar, thank you, as always, for your time tonight.
7: Thank you, Alex.
2: We will be right back. This was New York Times technology reporter Ryan Mack's last tweet before his Twitter account got suddenly and mysteriously suspended tonight, quote, Me setting up my Mastodon account, referring to a new Twitter competitor. And then a meme of Simpsons character Ralph Wiggum saying, I'm in danger. Now, the joke here is that this New York Times reporter knew the odds were good that his account might be suspended, not because anyone told him it would be, not because he did anything wrong, but because he fit tonight's pattern. Tonight, Twitter suspended the accounts of more than half a dozen journalists from CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post and other outlets. The suspensions came without warning or explanation. But many of the suspended accounts had recently written about a dispute between Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, and a 20-year-old Florida college student who uses public information to track Musk's jet. Now, we can't say why these suspensions happened, but this pattern is concerning. We are keeping an eye on it, and we will report back if we learn more. I'd say we would tweet the updates, but after doing this segment, I feel a bit like Ralph Wiggum myself. Am I in danger? That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids.